Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads. We are so happy that you joined us for part three, book three, of Walker Percy's The Moviegoer. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. This is, as I mentioned, the third major section in Walker Percy's 1961 National Book Award-winning novel, The Moviegoer. Our main character is Binks Bowling, a young man from New Orleans who fills his day with stockbroking, watching movies, and dalliances with his secretary. Okay, so I just learned something. Unless, <laughs> yeah, I, I, is stockbroking the correct verb form of that noun? Brokering that up, stock, stockbrokering. I don't know. This is my. I'm. I just, I'm really excited about potentially learning a new word. Do not let me be your guide on this. I literally was like, I, I got to make this an ing verb yeah. just to kind of keep the cadence of the sentence going. But I didn't. I don't know. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that before. Well, I thought it was great, and I am going to track this down. I don't know if it is stockbroking, stockbrokering, brokering stock. Right. There's options. Brokering and stock sounds right to me. It might be right, but if you're a stock broker, it stands to reason that you could stock broker verb form. But anyway, I, yes. I don't want to yes. derail the conversation. It's just, it stood out to me and I would, and so I'm commenting. You wanted to flag it. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, Heidi, when we last left our hero, question mark, our anti-hero, question mark. Protagonist. Bowling. Our protagonist. Yeah. That's He's the best not I can an do. antagonist. Yeah. It's the best I, I can do to call him a protagonist. Do. Definitely not um, heroic. He, no, he's not heroic. And this might be the beginning of part three. Is probably the part where we see Banks, the part of Banks that we can probably like the least. He's formed this relationship in the beginning of part three with Sharon, his secretary, who he's kind of had his eye on for a while, who he refers to um, as a cattleman might refer to his stock in earlier sections. And Binks and Sharon at the beginning of part three go on a trip down to the beach. And it's very clear that Binks is kind of, this is his opportunity to make his move mm-hmm. on Sharon. He's hoping that he can have a little tryst with Sharon, perhaps on some beautiful sandy beach, and he can escape the humdrum part of his life. The background of the entire book is that Binks is aware that he is on some sort of a search, right? He doesn't know exactly where to go on this search. He doesn't know exactly what he's looking for in this search, but he at least has begun an inquiry into this question of what am I doing here? What is, what is, you know, like what's life about? And, um, on this part of his search, he kind of takes a break, it seems to me, with Sharon. He kind of thinks, you know what? The search is a little bit heavy for me. Uh, time for some recreational romance. And a stunning thing happens as he and Sharon are headed to the beach. They have an accident. Mm. There's a car wreck. And his little MG... Binks Bowling's little MG is kind of spun to the side of the road and Binks is like re-aggravates a war injury in his shoulder and he comes to and Sharon is tending to him and they have a wonderful time together. But there's something, Heidi, we talked about this very conclusion of part two. Something happens with the accident. Um, Binks is concerned about falling into a malaise. Again, he's kind of always concerned that malaise is kind of lurking around the corner. And yet, during this car accident, malaise flies away. He, he, for a moment, he's, there's a kind of a respite despite the pain, despite the damage done. He is kind of called to attention away from his malaise. Did you pick up on this, Heidi? Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. I think it's significant. And it's it 
it harkens back to the original passage in which the search is mentioned. When the search is first brought up in the novel, it's at a moment of uh, like a near-death experience, an experience when uh, he's in war and he thinks he might die. That's the first time he looks over and he sees this dung beetle and he, he... the search has begun. And then it says significantly in that same passage that when he returns to his everyday life, he forgets all about the search. He says, naturally, I forget. All, I forgot yeah. all about it. And it's funny, right? But it's not funny. It's, uh, it's like many points in this novel, there's, there's this despair underneath the humor, uh, very modern, capital M modern, uh, that, that there's this sense that, he, that Binks has continually, that the everydayness of life has nothing to offer him. He needs to be face-to-face. He needs to be having some kind of extreme experience in life, whether, to your point, if he's trying to escape everydayness he's, and he's trying to get a little bit of weight taken off the search, what does he do? He searches out an intense experience, travel with a beautiful woman Mm -hmm. that he desires. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, he gets into a car accident. And so all of those things are very intense experiences. Uh, And so they they kind of push away the despair for a period of time. Uh, But that's always Binks' problem. Like, right, is it going to come creeping back? And at this point in his search, he fully expects it to. He knows that this is just a respite. Um, and uh, But he's still continually seeking out. There's something just so very, very modern. I know 50 Binks bowlings, right? Don't you? <laughs> yes, I do know 50 Binks bowlings. <laughs> and there's a Binks bowling in all of us. Um, and, oh, you know what, Tim, before we go any further, though, I want to address yeah. the uh, the the empty the emptiness in this conversation and that we have a missing member of our tribe again yes so and yes. We, we should have mentioned it at the top of the show uh david is uh as everybody knows who's paying attention to the show uh if you're following along you listeners know that he is opening up his bookstore uh it's open and it's doing well it's thriving you know this big leap of faith that he and bethany have taken to open this bookstore uh, seems at this point to have been just deeply rewarded and seen and valued and um so anyway, it is. Uh, it needs his full attention for this particular series. David is coming back. We t- we said last week that he would be back this week, and we thought that that was true. But I called him this week, Tim. I don't even think you and I talked about this, other than just via the group text. Um, right. And, uh, and just asked him, offered, hey, what if we just, what if Tim and I just cover the rest of the series yeah. so that you can give your full attention. Um, to what you're building right now to Goldberry Books, and he gratefully accepted that. So he'll be back for sure for the next series. But I did volunteer. I hope that's okay with you. I just volunteered that we could we could cover. Of we course. both have plenty to say about the moviegoers. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. And David has plenty of other things on his plate yeah. beyond opening the bookstore. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So he is not experiencing any I- malaise right now. Whatsoever. That we know of. That that was a good transition back to the book. However, Binks, although he is making money hand over fist, it says in the opening page of this section that he's that that investment that he made in the last section is thriving, right? It's gone up 10 points in the stock. He's brokered it. So let's see how see what he did there. So that he's already gained 10 points. And um, so, but and in spite of that, in spite of the fact that he's going to the beach with a beautiful woman and he's making money hand over fist and he has this wonderful family and that, that loves him and wants him to be successful, in spite of that, in spite of that, the malaise. What do you make of that? So here's my question, Heidi. If the malaise is kind of like ever present with him, why isn't he more adamant about or focused on his search? Because in this book, the beginning of part three is a great example. He wanders away from the search. You know, he goes on this kind of holiday with his secretary who like, he's really fascinated with as a sort of object of desire, but he doesn't seem to have genuine deep affection for her. Mm. Um, so the search gets derailed in favor of spending time with Sharon. And this seems to happen fairly frequently. The book is about the search. And yet so often 
Binks is not really on the search. He's doing other things. And why is that? Why isn't he, why isn't he just after solving this problem? Yeah. So I love this question and I have a, um, I, I feel like a broken record talking about the fundamental modern problem of the disconnection between the body and the soul and the, uh, you know, this, this, this individual and cultural loss of a shared vision for transcendence, which has undergirded culture for thousands of years and is now in modern times, capital M modern after World War I, profoundly lost. And we are all living in this. We are all a couple of generations in, uh, in which we do not know what it is like to have lived then because we all live now. And so we can read about it. We can think about it. Uh, uh, we can acknowledge it, but we can't know the despair mm-hmm. that happened in mm-hmm. this transitional generation, this generation adrift in which their parents grew up with a shared sacramental vision of cultural life, and they have lost it in their lifetime. We have our own particular brand of despair, having no connection with the old way, but we don't have that despair. And we, but we do have a record written by these novelists who straddled that generation, and it's remarkable what they have come up with. Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot this week about how kind of a framework in which to communicate this uh, on the podcast and. I'm wondering if this will work. And we've talked about this on the yeah, podcast before yeah. many times, Tim, you and I together, uh, specifically yeah. when we were talking about the Tempest, we talked about Plato's tripart vision of the soul. And um, mm. for people who, who didn't listen to that, uh, Plato uh, is Socrates. I mean, Plato recorded Socrates' vision of this, that there's these three parts to the human soul. Uh, the, and the, it's the belly, the chest, and the head. Right? The belly being the appetites, uh, the body, the needs and desires of the body, uh, driven by desire, driven by appetite. The chest or the heart, kind of this, this robust engagement with the world through honor, nobility, uh, through uh, uh, ambition in, in the good, the redeemed sense of the word. This robust engagement with culture, individual, family, relationship, and this very deep sense uh, of, of the heart, the life of the heart, the life of the chest, um, that, that there is something worth doing out there and that I'm capable of doing it. Right. And then the head knowledge. Um, this is this that final part. This the, this is where somebody might feel uh, a, a, a desire for reason uh, to engage in the world mm. through rational thought um, and ideals and ideas. Right. And then those three parts of the soul are unified in a robust way so that the human can engage with each other and with the world and with themselves. Uh, and. Mm. And here we have, and here we have a picture in this book of a vacillation between two parts of the soul that is completely disconnected and a missing part. Uh, and and somebody who yeah. talks about this in a really meaningful way is C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, when he talks about the modern problem being men without chests, right? Men without the heart, men without a vision for nobility. Um, And then if you take out the chest, you don't have a mediator between the head and the belly. And I think that's what we're seeing in this book is Banks vacillating all the time between the, the disconnected kind of disembodied Gnostic life of the mind, also not mediated to the life of the appetites and desire in the belly. And so to him, it makes perfect sense that to take a break from the search means to indulge the body's appetites, right? Because to him- I think, Heidi- Yeah, go ahead. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's a fair representation? I think it's so absolutely spot on. Can I I continue what you were saying? Absolutely. Um, he wrote an essay called the Delta factor. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it last week. Um, I think that Walker Percy would say exactly what you're saying, that, that what's missing is um, this. Let me back up. I think he sees this big conflict between um, modern science 
and let's call it, for lack of a better word, kind of old-time religion, Catholicism specifically. I think he sees that there's, in contemporary society, a really large gulf between these two things. So Catholicism can, it has, it has clothed the world in meaning. God is above us. Hell is below us. We live on this terrestrial plane between the two, and our souls are migrating either toward the one or toward the other. And all of our actions and our relationships and our habits are carrying us toward one of those ends. And so life is meaningful. On the other hand, modern science views the world very much as a, I mean, part, part of its mode is to strip meaning from the world so that it can provide facts, facts that help heal bodies from disease, facts that help us know when a hurricane is brewing in the Gulf of Mexico, facts that help protect human beings and extend life. But there is sort of an absence of a sort of like a a metaphysical model for modern science. And that is not a criticism of modern science. That's just an observation of how it functions. It's a proper ordering, right? What you're attempting to say is that there is this incredible value to it, but it must be properly ordered. Right, right. Or that's what he's arguing. And I think that what Walker Percy thinks, he's, he's arguing that there is a gulf between these two kind of modes of existence. Um, and, and so we, we, we've talked about this in other shows that the novelists of the 20th century are dealing with this kind of um, rupture in the clothing of the modern world that the, the modern world, as it becomes more and more appreciative of the gifts of science, it is also leaving behind a lot of the trappings, symbols, and meanings associated with that old world, which is a world of Christianity, especially in the West, more than anything else, Christianity. And I, I think our main character, Binks, is existing between these two worlds and finds neither one of them satisfying. Percy says in one of his essays that um, man's theory of himself no longer works. And the reason that man's theory of himself no longer works is because it can't combine these two kind of grand um, meaning-making modes. There's three M's. Meaning-making modes. It can't reconcile the old world of Christianity with the new world of kind of um, a materialistic bent toward science. I might think I just contradicted myself a little bit because I said these two meaning-making models and I kind of asserting that science does not clothe the world in meaning, but I'm not, I'm not, I hope people can kind of see that there's, um, that science, even though it tries to kind of strip meaning off the world to deal with facts, it still is a big model for what the meaning of life is. Right. It attempts to say we stop where material ends, like humanity stops. Humanity ends when the material world ends, and therefore, whoever has the most power to control the material world is therefore living the most meaningful life, right? And that's to your point that in in the meaning-making mode of materialism, wow, that is a lot of alliteration. (laughs) 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 The meaning-making mode of materialism, uh, as, as Lewis says in the abolition of man, then the entire goal is to gain power over the material world. And, uh, and in doing that, this is where the title of the book comes in doing that always succeeded in doing is abolishing the, Mm. the being human. Right. Uh, And he uses several Mm. examples in the book, everybody who is serious about understanding modernity uh, and putting our uh, our faith to work in a materialistic world should read ought to read the abolition of man. I mean, stat right away Mm. as he makes he uses several (laughs) examples of um, of ways that modern man has abolished its 
ourselves through attempting to control the materialism. Um, and it's, I mean, he uses the, the atom bomb, right? Science resulted, mm-hmm. results in the ability to destroy each other. And that's, uh, and he uses, he actually uses birth control as the other example in, mm. in the book. Um, and uh, we see that we see kind of, we're seeing a couple generations later, the uh, more and more uh, evidences of how those two particular inventions of man have continued to abolish man. And that's his whole point. If you have Mm. no chest, if you have no heart, if you have no vision for honor, for nobility, for community, uh, for, uh, for what it means to be a human being in the world that's put here to, to uplift and to innervate rather than to destroy. If you just vacillate between the head and the belly, you're not a whole man. That's his whole point. You're not a whole human. Mm. Uh, and so we have to recover uh, a meaningful vision for the heart, for the chest. And, um, and I think Walker Percy presents in the moviegoer a, a, a quintessentially modern man, a man who is constantly going between the two. He's really smart. He has a sharp mind. Uh, and he has a fully working body that has these needs and desires. And, and so mm-hmm. this, but he has no chest. He has no mediator between the two that offers a meaningful vision for what it means to be a noble person in the world. And he recognizes that the chest is missing. He doesn't know how to recover it. And that's the great tragedy, yeah. I think, of modern man. Um, and so in some ways, he's paying attention more than the average modern man, right? Because he knows I'm missing a chest. He wouldn't yeah, use those terms right. for it, of course. I mean, he doesn't right. have those terms. That's, those are specialized terms. But it's the question right. of what does it mean to live a meaningful life, not just a life led by my appetites or a life led by my thoughts? I think let's talk for a second, Heidi, about this kind of continuum of thought among Catholic writers in the 20th century, which we've discussed a lot on Close Reads. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we talked during The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway about these, how these authors think about the future of um, the Western world coming out of World War I and World War II. Someone like... I think uh, Ernest Hemingway coming out of World War I is going to say, you know what? Something deep and powerful was destroyed during World War I, that kind of overarching sacred canopy that was Christendom. That's, that's being kind of like ripped into shreds. It was ripped into shreds in the First and Second World War. And I think Hemingway is going to say, we cannot go back to life before them. I think Evelyn Waugh is going to say the same thing, except with one exception. He's going to say, yep, that sacred canopy that we lived under that gave meaning to our lives, not just going to church was not just a habit of Sundays, but it was, um, Christendom was something that, that made everyday actions, made family made church all part of a single tapestry and our beliefs and behaviors fit within that social canopy. We might have doubts from time to time. We can like peek out from under the social canopy, but it was, it was there and we could always kind of retreat back underneath it. And it was shared to some degree by friends and neighbors, even people we didn't know there was just this kind of shared sense that, we lived in a world that made sense after World War I, says Evelyn Waugh. That's no longer the case. But I think that Evelyn Waugh and I think that Walker Percy have different answers about where to go next. I think Evelyn Waugh is going to say, we've got to go back. We have to go back to what we lost and retrieve those things that were lost, that were destroyed during World War I and World, II, World War II. And I think Walker Percy is it acknowledges that something was lost, but I don't think that he says that we can go back. I don't think that he's going to say we need to do what Evelyn Waugh says and kind of um, 
find those kind of like sacred isolated places where we can return to what we once have and begin to practice again. I think he's saying that there's some sort of, and this is going to fit Heidi, I think with what you said a little while ago, that Binks lacks a chest. I think that what Percy believes is that we actually need a theory of the world that can accommodate both of these modes of inquiry. We need to be able to be modern persons who can acknowledge the great advancements of science while also saying, but not all of our technological advances are actually advances. Some of them um, are inhumane. Like the atomic bomb, a mm-hmm. consistent and overwhelming worry of the 20th century. It's, it's literally anti-human. In, it literally is built to it's destroy anti-human. It's humans. Bent, it's exactly, exactly. Right. It's in, um, yes. And so I think that he's saying, um, I might be speculating a little bit, but I think that Walker Percy is going to say something like, if we just want to retreat from the incredible power and incredible insights provided to us by science. And we want to retreat into kind of like an, a, a religious enclave. Then who's going to speak and protest the atomic bomb? Who's going to say, who's going to say this is inhumane. This needs to, there needs to be limits. There needs to be some, it needs to be made to serve us, not us to serve the bomb and atomic power. So I think that Percy, and part of me is I'm cheating a little bit, Heidi. I don't think that what I'm saying that Percy advocates is found entirely in the movie Gower. I've read, I've read like kind of everything that he's written, and it's a theme overtly stated in some of his essays. It's more clearly stated in some of his subsequent novels that what's missing is this ability to conjoin two modes of thought, two modes of being, that which is the religious and that which is science. And I think Banks and Sharon, when they arrive to his mother's house, out in the bayou, visiting with Binks's cousins and, and brothers and extended family, he begins to see something that he's not seen before. And he sees it especially in his cousins that go to church on Sunday. And there's an innocence to their faith that strikes him. It really strikes him. Like this is a massive clue that that kind of belief still exists out there. It seems like it's really compelling to Banks in some way. And so I think during this middle part of the book, we begin to see that the clues of the search are starting to turn in a direction, right? They're starting to turn. There's more of an openness toward this simple faith. It's like going to church, taking the Eucharist, believing what the priest says, living one's life in the goodness that the Catholic church teaches this is the beginning of a real pivot for banks. At least that's how I see it, Heidi. Well, I think that evidence to your point comes in his great love for Lonnie, right? Who has a broken body, but a uh, pure heart, right? That um, I love the conversation he has with Lonnie about, uh, about Lonnie's, Envy of Duval, who died, which, by the way, this poor this poor family. There's been so much death and so much loss in this family. Um, and to your point, they have a meaning maker, right? They're not devout, and I think that's important. I think that this yeah. this is there that that Percy is giving us a family that's not wildly religious. He says that over and over again. They're not devout, but they have a meaning-making mode in which to think and in which to dwell, in which to live. And they live like a very simple life connected with the land. They live um, 
and and they you know they they're fishing like they're constantly eating fish and crawfish and they're eating all, which you know that's part of their culture but i think the attention that percy draws to it about kind of this nourishment this like very um fundamental nourishment that's coming to them out of the deep right that they have to fish for that they mm. have to find um and and that kind of consumes their days and their time i think that there's a significance to that a symbolic significance to you know they're eating the bottom feeders but they're being nourished well right and um and that this is part of uh how they are uh, finding some kind of structure to their lives in, fi- in, in spite of all of this sadness these people are not depressed it's banks who has everything right. depressed right and and that is yeah. uh but he doesn't feel a part of it um and but the most meaningful conversation that he has is with Lonnie, this 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 young man, fourteen years old, who's very clearly dying. Um, and even if he wasn't dying, he's 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 not healthy. His body is broken, and 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 yet he's participating in the sacramental life. And Banks is honoring of that. Um, Mm-hmm. He tries to persuade him to not to fast. He tries to persuade him to to eat and to um and he tries to talk him out of um the the sense of um confession that Lonnie sees is very meaning making in his life. He keeps telling him it's not that bad that you envied yeah. it's not that bad that you wanted him to die. Like you're fine, right? Um don't go to confession, don't fast. And 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 Lonnie has this very staunch faith. He says, um there's a point that he said that um, Binks says to him, but you didn't hurt Lonnie with your, you didn't hurt Duval with your envy. And then, oh, man, mm. this profound reply that Lonnie has, right? But I'm hurting myself. The capital mm. sins do damage to my own soul. So I need to participate in the sacraments. Um, and, and he, Binks can't, I think it's very significant. Binks cannot. He can't shake that faith in Lonnie, right? Even though he he's he's trying to help him, but in trying to help him, he's trying to persuade him away from the sacramental life, and Lonnie won't go, he won't budge. Yeah. And I, I think that that's very. And to your point, he's tender-hearted towards that. He thinks it's he probably thinks he doesn't tell us exactly what he thinks. Maybe he thinks it's superstitious. Maybe he thinks that uh, you know it's not sufficient for modern problems or whatever. He just wants Lonnie to be happy. Um, but I think that that's a significant moment, and I just took like, a very sweet moment in the reading for me. I was very drawn to this boy. Yeah. There's, this is also a theme that will show up in subsequent Walker Percy books. Uh, I believe it's the last mo- movie go, oh, excuse me, the last gentleman, or maybe um, the second coming. There's a conversation very late in the book in which the main character is speaking to a Catholic priest and it's kind of a, a, it's a culminating episode. I won't give too much of it away. It's a culminating episode, this conversation between the main character and the priest. And the priest has a wobbling eye. Like one of his eyes is lazy. And Walker Percy, the novel writer, kind of like highlights how this eye is really distracting to the main character. And there's a sense that the main character is kind of wanting the priest to be emblematic of like everything that's like the strength of faith and holiness. But the man kind of from the beginning of the conversation is he's not clowned by Percy, but it's very clear that his, he is physically broken. Mm. And there's something like about Lonnie. his physical yeah. brokenness like Lonnie. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what you thought of this. Like why, why is this character of Lonnie, why is it so important that he's physically limited, damaged? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did just, you read anything into that? I did. Exactly what you're saying. I haven't read that book, but I'm, I'm curious about yeah. it now. Um, but I did read. I think that there's, it has to be, the representation of the church in the novel has to be crippled in some way. And, and even when mm. the family goes to church, he's continually drawing attention to the fact that they're not going for the mass itself. They're not even paying attention to the mass itself. The thing they care about is whether the time has been moved 45 minutes, right? Like they're, and, and he even comments on Sharon's kind of wide eyed Protestant naivete that she thinks it's weird Mm. that this family like spent so much time and effort to get the church. And then once they get there, they're not even paying attention. 
Um, mm -hmm. But I also noticed that Walker Percy specifically draws attention to Lonnie being helped to receive communion um, and how, I can't remember who it is, Roy, right, that holds Lonnie's head still so that he can receive the Eucharist. Um, mm. So there's, there's still this, you know, and as, you know, when we when we hear the Eucharistic service every week, they say, like, we believe that this is to the healing of soul and body. And the entire church chants that before receiving the Eucharist. And, and that, uh, and that idea that the Eucharist is for, which is sacramental, it's made of ordinary things, bread and wine, but it is transformed by the church and by the presence of God into the life of the world and that that then what you are putting in your mouth according to liturgical theology according to the catholic theology that it, that we're seeing here in this in this book that when it is put in your mouth it is no longer just bread and wine for a memorial it is life it is it has yeah. been transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. And in receiving it, that particular thing gives life, not because it's a memorial, but beca not because it means something, but because it does something. And that is Catholic mm -hmm. theology about the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, this boy is still crippled. This priest still has right. a wandering eye, right? And that's the... that. What is that about, right? Like there's, and yet, even though Binks is going there and he still walks, he still leaves with more malaise uh, and the ride home than he had going into this weekend. Right. And I think that's, right. that's the question that the novel is raising, right? To your point about Evelyn Wan, Walker Percy, and these novelists, they're not shying away. They're not saying that, you know, man, these moderns, they sure have big problems. Why don't they just go back to church? That's not what they're saying. They're mm. presenting us characters mm. that are in church, encountering the mystery, and yet are not changed by it. And they're yeah. like this character that's on a search, and yet... That he doesn't have some kind of big epiphany here in the center of the heart of the novel, so to speak, in which he actually goes to right. church and receives Eucharist and nothing happens. What do you make of that? That's the modern problem. Yeah. Um, is it just that I have to believe in it? Is it like Santa? Is it like all the movies about Christmas that just like, oh, as long as I believe, then Santa will bring me presents? Is it just the belief that matters? Or is it real? Capital R, real. And the modern problem is that is it real or is it just about belief this i believe i'm going to read something from page 146 when binks is binks and sharon are staying over at binks's mother's place binks wakes up in the middle of the night and he takes out a notebook and he scribbles something down here's what he scribbles remember tomorrow starting point for search it no longer avails to start with creatures and prove God. Yet, it is impossible to rule God out. The only possible starting point, the strange fact of one's own invincible apathy, that if the proofs were proved and God presented himself, nothing would be changed. Here's the strangest fact of all. Abraham saw signs of God and believed. Now, the only sign is that all of the signs in the world make no difference. Is this God's ironic revenge? But I am on to him. It's a funny, it's like, a, it's like this strange little interlude just dropped into the middle of this That's book. Cool. It reminds me in some ways of the section that we talked about, about um, what happens when one sees a Jew on the street to a man on a search. It means everything. And this is like this little scrap of a note that he makes in the middle of the night about um, seeking a sign of God, and yet upon receiving signs, it makes no difference at all. And this, this, the fact that he seeks a sign, the sign is found, but he makes, but it makes no difference. This might be, this is a huge step forward in the search. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to this, this, these conflicting ways of knowing. I think this book over and over, as I've read it, like I'm now reading it through, my, through the third time, these conflicting ways of knowing are 
central to this book. So again, the two ways are maybe the, the way of science. The scientist or the observer looks down at the data or looks at the tree and the leaves on the tree and draws general principles from observation of um, repeated data. That's one way of knowing. Hmm. It's a data-driven way of knowing. Right. But there's this other way of knowing that Binks is really starting to piece together here, which is, let's call it a supernatural way of knowing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, the answers are found in the mysteries of being alive and being a human being. And strange events like an accident on a beautiful day in a car, there's something that, that tells us. It, 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 it it sheds light on this mystery of what it means to be a human being, that we somehow come alive more in moments of catastrophe and labor than we do when all of our physical needs are met and we are living a pain-free, like pain-free existence. There's something when we're in a pain-free existence in a pain-free atmosphere, when all of our needs are satiated, that we're deeply unhappy, mm-hmm. but we're more happy when we're facing like an obstacle. This is a big clue mm-hmm. for banks. And so I think there's, he sees that the search for God, if it's presented at, in the first mode, maybe like uh, Thomas Aquinas's five ways, like the five ways, if you've ever read the five ways, they're terrific. Mm. They're wonderful. They're so insightful. They're logical. They're compelling. And I, I won't speak for you, Heidi, but when I taught, um, when I've taught students Thomas Aquinas's five ways, there's usually a kind of a strange, um, how do I say this? There's a recurring response to the five ways, which is, oh, oh, that's kind of interesting. Huh. And I think that Walker Percy is going to say that response is exactly what you should expect because Aquinas presents them kind of in the first mode as the scientist um, making logical deductions based on a, a limited data set. But that is not the kind of knowledge that brings one into the kingdom. It's not the kind of knowledge that shudders one into kind of a different state of being. It's not. Mm-hmm. There has to be a different mode of absorbing things. And I think we're seeing in this section, Banks is starting to kind of um, assemble some of these different wonders in his search. And the search is beginning to turn more and more toward action. Mm-hmm which is something Heidi, you and I have talked about a lot in movies and in plays and in books. Structurally speaking, they're oftentimes in the middle part of the book, middle part of the movie, Mm -hmm. a shift from a quest for knowledge to action dependent upon the achieved knowledge. And I think we're starting to see that in the movie are. Mm -hmm. We're yeah. starting to shift from, do I, can I understand, can I like assemble this search in such a way that I can live a different sort of life to now he's starting to kind of see enough glimmers that he's going to start moving toward action, toward kind of a, a, a destination, a different way of being. Are you seeing the book shift like that, Heidi? Yeah, I am. I think that there has to be some kind of movement here that there's to your point there's these clues that that binks is gathering um there's these uh you know what's in in his attempt to deviate from the search is it possible that he's actually gaining something that will help him on his search i think is an important question um and so yeah i think that that we can expect uh something, but I'm not sure it will, it will be an upward movement yet, you know, um, what, what would an upward movement, meaning you, an upward resolution, movement like? meaning some kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. I think that he's not far gone enough yet for a modern novel. <laughs> so, 
Um, there's, there's, I, I mean, I haven't finished, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know, but how about halfway through, um, is this kind of feels like a, uh, an interlude before things get dark to me. That's, that's how it feels to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. So we'll see, but I think I also want to talk about his conversation with his mother that he has, which when Mm -hmm. his mother tells him that um, you're so much like your father. And then he asks her these questions about his dad and, um, and -hmm. what he was like. And then we learn that, uh, that his father, is it John? Is John his father's name? I've forgotten. I don't know. Okay. Well, he's asking about his dad and he's learning that his dad went on like a hunger strike for a while and had to be fed. And, you know, so you can definitely see these, uh, um, these connections, the melancholy, what does it all mean? Prone to despair kind of person. Um, So he, we do, we do get to see that he is indeed kind of a chip off the old block. Um, and there's a couple of yeah. things I wanted that couple of things that stood out to me about that conversation. Um, one is how, um, how his mother is, she may be present their family may be presented as this kind of uh, defined by religion. They, they, they do have this meaning making mode that you've been talking about. Um, but they do not have, they do not live in a full experience of a robust human life either. And she refuses to engage in thinking about anything. Right. And, and, and we see that in that he's, he's asking her to make meaning out of his father's life, right? Like you can, anybody who's paying attention, if this was my son, I'd be like, what are you asking? What's the question behind the question? What do you want to know about your dad? How can I talk Mm. to you and help you Mm. kind of get what she doesn't give him anything? No, she gives him nothing. And he says, Two, he says about her that she's always made an emblem out of my father, right? And I think that that's, and he says, she's, he says that later about um, how he wants her to marry Kate. And he says, she's also made an emblem out of Kate. And that word emblem, right, is a, a kind of a symbolic representation of something, but it's missing the thing itself, right? And I think that's very mm. significant about their entire, that entire family's engagement with religion, except for Lonnie. Right? And I'm going to leave Lonnie as an exception to that because I think he has a pure heart yeah. and a true engagement and is the, the, the whole man, right? Um, and uh, however, the mother is, um, she may have the belly, they all have the belly. Everybody's got a belly. Belly's, belly's universal. Um, and then they have a bit of the chest, right? But they have no noose. They have no head. They have no spiritual eyes. Mm. And um, they are not on a search. They have, mm. they are fine living in the bayou, eating off the bottom and going to church and going to mass. And so to your point, to your exact point, Percy is saying, we can't go back. If we just go back, this is all there is. But what about the people who are on the search? And so that's a, I, I do think that, I mean, I haven't finished it, but I do think I am seeing that invitation to those two modes that you're talking about in this novel. Um, and yeah. the fact that his family, his mother is not a solution. She is even she is in some ways has created the problem because she's not, she sees everything as an emblem, right? It's symbolic of something like my, my, he's, you know, your dad was, he was always asking questions. Yeah. Right. And then she just stops, right? Why not, why not engage with the questions? Why not try to figure out how they're Mm. connected to the thing that she has, right? Which is the faith. And that, that link is missing, and it's missing in modern culture. It's missing in Bing's bowling. And it's missing in the mother, just from a different perspective. The mother mother also, um, she likes Sharon. Mm-hmm. But Sharon's not the girl for Banks, is she, Heidi? No. Mom knows that she's not the girl for Banks. Do we- right. Why not? She's a belly girl, right? She's just as much part of the problem. She's yeah. not presented as some kind of Beatrice leading him on the path of salvation. Like she is, right. she's, she's sex. 
Yeah. She's not presented, in my opinion, any more attractively than Binks is. She's not like this. She's, she can't talk to her. She repeats herself. She taught, she's, I, I mean, I couldn't have a conversation with that girl. Let me like, so right. there's nothing wrong with her, but she's not the girl for Binks because she also is entire. She's, she's not a full She's not presented as some kind of full human. She is just the belly herself. Heidi, on either our penultimate episode next week or the one after, I'm going to ask you, so I want you to just start being, getting prepared now. And I'm going to start preparing the same and answer the same question. Uh, this question, does Percy think that everyone must go on a search it, it seems like it's a particular, the search Great is a particularly question. modern phenomenon. Like, I don't know that Abraham would have gone, needed to go on a search in the same way that Binks must go on a search. Um, my question is, does every modern person, according to Walker Percy, have to go on a search? But we'll table that for a week, maybe two weeks. We'll give you. We'll give you a little time. Yeah, because I don't to conjugate know. on that. I would have to say, I don't know. Ought everybody to go on a search, or is the search if people who have arrived at a holistic vision for the meaning of life, whether it's well thought out or whether it's just accepted as a given thing, right? Um, yeah. Is that is that is that sufficient? Um, I don't know what Walker Percy would say. I probably know my own opinion about that, but I, I don't know what Percy would say yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. The conclusion of uh, part three of this book is a return back home via the car, the MG that was damaged, Sharon and Binks return home. There's a real loss of sizzle between Binks and Sharon. You know, they're on the beach together after the accident and it's all charm and enjoyment and they're drinking beer with the sand beneath them. It's wonderful, right? It's like, what a great day. But it certainly seems like it was a mirage. It wasn't something that could really last. And when we return, <laughs> thank you. When we return, Binks hears that uh, Kate, who's the other of the three you know, main female characters, we hear that Kate is in trouble again. And I don't know about you, Heidi, but I found it oddly comforting that Kate was in trouble again, not because I want these bad things for Kate, but there's something about Kate's, um, I don't know what you'd call it, her illness, fragility. her sadness, her melancholy, her fragility, that seems to beckon Binks back toward the search that he has to stay on. That's really, he's easy. He's easily dissuaded from it. You are on an alliteration. Like I you're really doing great on your Beckon Binks back, meaning making mode. Nice. All right. I'm really proud of it. Good job. You should. You and should own that, any right? You should definitely write a poem today. Uh-huh. You are on a roll. You're <laughs> already. I should. Um, did, did you find it kind of comforting that like, Oh, Kate's in trouble again. We are back where we belong. Um, or did you, are you kind of worried about Kate? Like, man, what's going to happen? Oh, I think the, that Kate is the, uh, you know, the specter of worry haunting the whole novel. You are always supposed to be worried about Kate. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it's kind of at this point, interestingly enough, Kate's fragility is the anchor point of this novel. So, um, it's so funny. It's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So that's it's exactly know, right. There's something, and that somehow his search, somehow Binks's search, and Binks's uh, is is then somehow tied because that's the other anchor point of the novel and and so the two of them are somehow tied together um and we're not sure exactly how yet so i think that that's um yeah i but i, I think that it's significant that this whole center point of the novel part three is this feels very much very shakespearean to me um that's got these five parts 
there's this, it's this five part book, just like Shakespearean's five part plays, five act plays. And um, there's some kind of turning points in act three in every Shakespearean play, but, but sometimes it's a bit hidden and then it all goes down. Um, you know, mm. the, it all hits the fan in act four. And so that's what I'm expecting. Like I said, I haven't finished the novel yet, um, but I am expecting that as we move past this like kind of quiet heart of the book when he is he has this girl and nothing traumatic happens in fact we get almost a glimpse you know those like um those uh back in the 90s and the early 2000s when everybody was making romantic comedies and there's always some part in romantic comedy when uh when some like high-powered male or female goes back home to their family and then that the other protagonist the love interest gets to see what they were like in their family home and um and then falls in love yeah. and because of that you know like oh he was such a sweet child even though he's a mean stockbroker in real life he's a real you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. pushy sinner and i love him now like that's kind of what this feels like a little bit we as a reader and gets this glimpse into um into banks outside of the city in the realm of nature with his mother and we see the problems of that and we also see kind of his squishy center a little bit um and and yeah. now he's going back into real life and he's got to take care of kate and i'm expecting it to get dark yeah i think you are right about that heidi i'm not going to spoil anything for you yeah. or for our listeners but i think that there's we've got some darkness ahead of us and we've mm-hmm. got a, like a little bit of an allusion to it at the very con- last uh, chapter in part three that things are not going well with Kate mm. and we will pick that up next week when we reconvene. So Heidi, um, I'm going to ask you in a second, what sort of things you're looking forward to in part four? I'm going to begin that, um, conversation by saying that part four is going to be about the contrast, I think, between Sharon and Kate. And I think there's something, it's a fascinating juxtaposition because we will have seen everything about Binks' time with Sharon was lovely. They had a car wreck. Even the car wreck is like kind of lovely. You know, it brings the two of them together. And Sharon goes and stays at the house, you know, Binks' house with his mother and all these relatives. And they eat crawfish and it's lovely and Sharon and Banks by all rights and indications really should be kind of like beginning a romance but it doesn't happen by the car ride home we realize this is just burned away and there's just not much left we're going to see the juxtaposition in book four Kate is going to come back on the scene and Banks and Kate like Banks and Sharon are going to take a trip together and whether there's a future for Binks and Sharon, you could probably guess, I'm not going to say it. You have to pay attention to part four. Um, Heidi, what are you looking for in this next section of the movie goer? I think, I think same. I think more, I think this makes me sound bloodthirsty. I would like to see more <laughs> manifestations of the problems of this of, of mm. Binks's approach to the world. Um, I feel like everything's been pretty hidden so far. Um, and so there's, I would, I would like to see some exploration of uh, some of the dark underbelly of his lifestyle kind of coming to the surface. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd like to see that explored kind of the teasing out of, of, um, of those, you know, flawed beliefs, if they're flawed. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I actually don't see a, a ton of movie going. So I'm curious about that. Yeah. He's, yeah. So, we get a decent amount of that in the first couple of sections, but no movies so this chapter. You did see um, this section. Yeah. So um, I'm, I, I I do understand. You're ready to go back to the movies, Heidi. I'm ready to go back to the movies. Let's see some. Let's see some movie going. I want to remind our listeners the the podcast Close Reads is kind of the flagship for a bunch of other discussions that take place on the Close Reads discussion group on Facebook. 
Um, we also have an Instagram and a Twitter account, which you can find at Close Reads Pods. You can also contact us via email by writing to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget, you've also got an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. The main way, I think, to get in touch with us is via the Facebook page. And you will not be lacking for friends if you become <laughs> a regular on that, in that conversation. Right, Heidi? That's right. It's like the Lewis it's, quote, it's, right? It's, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. If you think you are the only one <laughs> right. who likes to talk about books and has strong opinions and ready to engage with that, you are not alone. They are all on Facebook yeah. on the Close Reads Podcast discussion group, including Tim and I and David, who are pretty active there. So we'd love to get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when new listeners show up, they... We love it when they announce themselves and gives us a chance to kind of at least see your name and your profile picture. And hopefully it's an opportunity for us to engage with you a little bit more. Even if you think we're wrong, we Heidi, invite you to disagree. Even if you think we're no. wrong, it's almost especially if you think we're wrong. Good. Yeah. Some of those fruitful discussions come out of those kind of like the crossing of swords. It's lovely. Hey, Heidi, thanks for, um, joining me of course part three. always so fun to be here a shout out again to david kern and bethany and their venture at goldberry books and a thanks to all of you our listeners for tuning in for this third section of walker percy's the moviegoer join us next week for part four of the moviegoer and as always thank you and happy reading <laughs> <laughs>